Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Delta Airlines September Quarter Financial Results Conference Call. My name is Cassidy, and I will be your coordinator. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode until we conduct a question-and-answer session following the presentation. As a reminder, today's call is being recorded. I would now like to turn the conference over to Jill Greer, Vice President of Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Thanks, Cassidy. Good morning, everyone, and thanks for joining us for our September quarter earnings call. Joining us from Atlanta today are our CEO, Ed Bastian, our President, Glenn Howenstein, and our CFO, Paul Jacobson. Our entire leadership team is available for the Q&A session. Ed will open the call with an overview of Delta's performance and strategy. Glenn will provide an update on the revenue environment, and Paul will discuss cost liquidity in our balance sheet. We'll then go to our Q&A and ask you to limit yourself to one question and a brief follow-up so we can get to as many analysts as possible. Today's discussion contains forward-looking statements that represent our beliefs or expectations about future events. All forward-looking statements involve risks and uncertainties that could cause the actual results to differ materially from the forward-looking statements. Some of the factors that may cause such differences are described in Delta's SEC filings. We'll also discuss non-GAAP financial measures, and all results exclude special items unless otherwise noted. You can find a reconciliation of our non-GAAP measures on the Investor Relations page at ir.delta.com. And with that, I'll turn the call over to Ed. Well, thanks, Jill. Good morning, everyone. Appreciate you joining us today. This morning, we reported a $2.6 billion adjusted pre-tax loss on a 79% decline in revenues for the September quarter. We ended the quarter with over $21 billion in liquidity, having brought our cash burden down to $18 million per day in the month of September. And while we still have a long road ahead of us when you look through the large toll that the pandemic has taken, we are showing progressive improvement across the business, performing well on factors within our control and ensuring the company is well positioned as demand starts to return. And there are signs that customers are becoming increasingly confident in, re in returning to air travel, with TSA counts growing each week. But we are still running at a fraction of our normal capacity and expect that our December quarter revenues will be 30 to 35% of what we saw a year ago. Put that improvement in context, our revenues bottomed out in the second quarter at only 10% of prior year levels. We're at 21% of prior year levels in the third quarter, and we expect them to be roughly one-third of prior year levels in the fourth quarter. Steady improvement, as Q4 is expected to generate three times the revenue of Q2, but still a long way to go. To see a meaningful step up in demand from here, we'll need business travel to further improve, local quarantines to end, and international restrictions to lift. That will only come with widespread advances by the medical community and offices reopening which many expect will start to happen in the first half of next year. As we all know, the path to revenue recovery is dependent on demand returning at scale. Until then, our focus is on doing a great job at what we can control, taking great care of our people and our customers, protecting our liquidity, and managing our cost performance. For our customers, we continue to emphasize safety and health with the Delta Care Standard, our multi-layered approach that includes intense cleaning protocols, blocking middle seats, and requiring masks on board our planes. According to IATA, with over 1 billion air travelers worldwide in 2020, there have only been 44 documented cases of suspected COVID transmission on board an aircraft 
and virtually all of them were in the early months of the pandemic before masks and revised safety protocols came into existence. We carry at Delta over 1 million people a week and have had no documented transmission on board any of our aircraft. The Delta Care Standard works and it's keeping our customers and our employees safe. And as a result, customers are increasingly becoming comfortable returning to the air. Our customer-focused approach is producing record net promoter scores, which reached 75 in September, which is up a staggering 22 points over the prior year levels. This is a testament to the Delta people who have continued to shine throughout this historic crisis. By restoring customers' confidence in travel and investing in their long-term loyalty and trust, we're creating a path to sustainable revenue growth in the future. But we do believe it could still be two years or more until we achieve a normalized revenue environment. Until then, we will be smaller in the short term, but also more agile and more efficient. Today, we're already 20% smaller than we were at the start of this year, having reduced our fleet, our headcount, and our overhead. These were difficult but essential decisions that positioned Delta to emerge as a more resilient airline. We have resized our ground and flight attendant workforces by 20%. I'm grateful to all those employees for the sacrifices, from those taking early retirement decisions to the 40,000 staff who took unpaid voluntary leaves throughout the pandemic, and thus reducing our labor costs for our non-pilot groups by more than 40% over the past six months. This was the driving factor that allowed us to avoid furloughs and protect their jobs. We are still working with ALPA, and hopefully we can achieve that same result with our pilots. But if not, we will be furloughing roughly 1,700 pilots on the 1st of November. We've reduced our fleet by retiring more than 200 aircraft this year and accelerated our fleet simplification to retire nearly 30% of our fleet, or 400 aircraft by 2025. Along with our revised Airbus order book, this cuts years off the timeline to achieving a higher gauge fleet with lower seat cost and a better customer experience. By making these structural changes to our cost base in this constrained environment, we will have significant cost and margin tailwind ahead of us as higher yielding business travel does return and our load factor caps begin to ease. And we are seeing early signs of our cost efficiency steps paying off as our fourth quarter all-in chasm is projected to be roughly flat despite a 40% reduction in capacity year over year. It's an incredible result and creates nice momentum heading into 21. The challenges of this year have reinforced our belief in the importance of an investment-grade balance sheet, and our top financial priority will be to regain that as soon as possible. The first step in that process is getting back to break-even cash flow. We had initially hoped to be there by the end of this year, but as the virus has had greater impact on our business than expected, that goal has shifted a few months. We expect to average a daily cash burn rate of $10 million per day in the December month with good line of sight to positive cash flow by the spring. Once we achieve that milestone, we'll have a heightened focus on paying down debt. Putting all this good work into perspective, it's been about positioning Delta to accelerate into a post-COVID recovery. Do we know exactly when that recovery will happen or what it will look like? No. 
but by taking out complexity, simplifying our cost structure, improving our products and service levels now, and maintaining strong employee morale in the face of this challenging time, we do know that we'll be even more customer focused with a stronger brand and a solid financial foundation. And with that, we will be well positioned to adapt and to win. Now, I'll turn the call over to Glenn. Thanks, Ed, and good morning, everyone. Since we last spoke in July, we've seen a steady progression in demand. This has resulted in our net cash sales improving from five to 10 million per day at the beginning of the quarter to approximately 25 to 30 million per day at the end of the quarter. That said, demand strength varied in different regions and segments of our business. Corporate demand has shown signs of modest improvement. And while the volume of corporate travel at the end of the quarter was 15% of last year's levels, corporate volumes are trending upward across all industries, and we expect this to continue into 2021. Apart from the Caribbean and Mexico, international demand remains weak. This is largely due to government-imposed restrictions in key markets. In the U.S., we've seen demand recover to 30, 20, 35 to 40% of pre-pandemic levels with strength in leisure markets like Florida, the Mountain West, and the beach destinations. However, cities that are under quarantine requirements like New York and Boston are recovering more slowly and are now just above 20% of pre-pandemic levels. As we approach the holiday travel period, we've been pleased with the recent booking trends for Thanksgiving and Christmas, which show that customers continue to gain confidence in booking further out. Our non-ticket businesses have held up relatively well during the quarter, with both loyalty revenue and cargo outperforming passenger revenues. The strength in our loyalty revenue stream is in large part due to the spend on the Delta co-brand card. American Express has stated that the spend on our co-brand card has held up better than other Amex cards. We recently launched a card acquisition campaign after putting those efforts on hold and have had excellent response to this offering. This, in combination with spend trends that Amex has seen, suggests that our customers' aspirations to travel remain intact. As Ed mentioned, we focused on making sure Delta is well positioned for a future recovery. We've been accelerating redevelopment projects in our airports, and we were excited to open Concourse A in Salt Lake City. This was the first new U.S. hub airport to open in 20 years. In New York and Los Angeles, we're taking years out of our construction timelines, getting our customers a faster path to a better terminal experience while also lowering our construction costs. I'd like to call out our properties and facilities team for the excellent work they've been doing across the network on accelerating all of our uh, airport projects. We've made it easier for customers to do business with Delta, eliminating most domestic change fees, extending medallion and Sky Club benefits, and refunding approximately $2.8 billion back to our customers so far this year. We're also rebuilding the network by leveraging our strengths, focusing on connecting customers through our core hubs and adding capacity to coastal hubs only as demand returns. In the domestic network, 80% of our current capacity is on our core hubs of Atlanta, Detroit, Minneapolis, and Salt Lake City. And in those hubs, we're using our most cost-efficient, highest-gauge equipment as we retire less efficient aircraft. 
Internationally, a majority of our long-haul capacity is in our JV partner hubs we are, where we are able to efficiently connect traffic. Similar to the domestic entity, we're moving towards using our most cost-efficient wide-body aircraft in our international operations by leveraging the A330s and the A350s and eliminating the subscale 777 fleets and sunsetting the 767-300ERs. While the longer network rebuild is underway, we are also technically managing the network in the near term. We are increasing capacity around the peak leisure holiday periods like Thanksgiving and Christmas, while reducing it during off-peak periods like Halloween and the election week. This approach will result in our December quarter capacity being 40 to 45% lower year on year, or approximately 60% lower when you factor in our block seats. By doing so, we're aligning capacity with the emerging demand environment and our expectations that December quarter revenue will be down 65 to 70% versus last year. Before I turn the call to Paul, I'd like to just thank our entire commercial team for all they've done in managing through these extraordinary times. We all know it's been a difficult six months, but we feel like we're very well positioned for where we stand and where the pandemic is. And with that, I'd like to turn the call over to my good friend, Paul. Thank you, Glenn. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us. This morning, we reported an adjusted pre-tax loss of $2.6 billion on revenue of $2.6 billion. This quarter's results exclude one-time charges that are due to our response to the COVID-19 pandemic, including $2.2 billion in fleet-related charges, a $3.1 billion charge from the voluntary separation and early retirement packages, and a $1.3 billion benefit from the CARES Act grant funds. Our results this quarter were underpinned by a strong focus on costs, as we reduced operating expenses by $5.5 billion, or 52%, similar to the decline achieved in the June quarter, despite flying 23 points more capacity. We also expect our December quarter operating expenses to be approximately 50% lower year over year, producing a December quarter consolidated chasm that is flat to down on 40 to 45% lower capacity, a truly remarkable outcome. We've gotten here by resizing the airline by 20%. First, we had approximately 18,000 of our coworkers opt to take either a voluntary separation or early retirement package earlier this summer. In addition, we still have over 12,000 employees on a voluntary unpaid leave of absence who will return at various times over the next 12 months. In total, the voluntary exits, the voluntary leaves, hour reductions, and other employee initiatives have saved Delta over $1.9 billion in salary costs so far this year. Second, we accelerated our fleet simplification with our intention to retire our CRJ200 fleet by 2023 and our 717 and 767-300ER fleets by 2025. We've also reached agreement with Airbus on the restructuring of our order book. This restructuring reduces our aircraft purchase commitments by more than $2 billion in 2020 and by more than $5 billion through 2022. Our fleet actions will result in the retirement of almost 400 aircraft by 2025, including more than 200 this year alone. This will eliminate four fleet families, reducing complexity and driving meaningful cost savings in areas like maintenance and pilot training, while also producing a far better customer experience. 
So while some of the cost actions we have taken this year are temporary and will come back as we rebuild the business, the changes we have made on headcount and fleet are structural. Those actions and the eventual easing of our load factor caps will allow us to bring capacity back in a measured way and at lower incremental costs, providing future margin tailwinds for the business. Our strong cost focus has also allowed the increase we've seen in net sales, which is tickets purchased versus tickets refunded, to flow directly into an improvement in our daily cash burn, which improved from $27 million per day in June to $18 million per day in the month of September. Looking forward, we expect to see a progressive trend in our daily cash burn and currently expect to exit the year with an average daily cash burn of 10 to $12 million for the December quarter. Turning to the balance sheet, we ended the September quarter with $21.6 billion in liquidity and adjusted net debt of only $17 billion, up $6.5 billion since the end of the December quarter 2019. During the quarter, we raised $9 billion backed by the cash flows and IP of our SkyMiles program. The financing was nearly six times oversubscribed and priced at a blended rate of 4.75%, an amazing outcome for the largest debt offering ever by an airline. Really, really great work and amazing execution by our finance, SkyMiles, and legal teams all working together to get that done. With our cash burn trajectory on track to achieve break-even by spring, and a solid liquidity position, our balance sheet work has already begun. Last week, we repaid the $3 billion outstanding under our 364-day term loan due in March of next year. We also paid down $2.6 billion we had drawn on our revolvers earlier in the year, and that capacity remains available in the future. We have now flattened our near-term debt maturities with $2.3 billion of obligations due through the end of 2021. Our actions also freed up more than $3 billion in collateral tied to the term loan. As a result, we now have $9 to $10 billion of unencumbered assets, including newer vintage aircraft. We are on track to end the year with more than $16 billion in liquidity and adjusted net debt of approximately $19 billion. In closing, we've made significant strides over the last six months. However, more hard work is still ahead to ensure that we build the foundation for Delta's recovery. I'm confident that with the Delta spirit and values that our employees exhibit every single day, the airline will pull through and emerge stronger and more resilient. And with that, I'll turn the call back over to Jill to begin the Q&A. Thanks, Paul. Kathy, we are ready for the analyst question period. If you could give the instructions on how to get into the queue. Thank you. If you would like to ask a question, please signal by pressing star 1 on your telephone keypad. If you are using a speakerphone, please make sure your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Again, press star 1 to ask a question. We'll pause for just a moment to allow everyone an opportunity to signal for questions. Our first question comes from Joe Denardi of Stifle. Uh, good morning. Um, Paul, you talked about all-in CASM being in line with 4Q19 despite the lower capacity. Can, can you talk about what level of ASMs you think you need to fly for X fuel unit costs to be in line with 2019 levels? Is it 70% is it of 2019 capacity? Is it 90? Is it 105%? What's the right way to think about that? Yeah, Joe. So we're, we're looking at everything, obviously, on, a, on an all-in cost basis. 
uh, going forward. And I think it's important to note that, you know, we've managed to keep our, our total operating expenses flat um, or, or de the, the reduction flat over the last few quarters as we continue to ramp up capacity of the airline. Um, as I mentioned in my comments, I think, you know, it's, it's important to note that some of what we've done is obviously temporary, and the, the balance here is making sure that we're bringing costs back at the same pace or at a measured pace with demand returning in our capacity decisions as well. Fuel price is going to be an important part of that, but as we look at where we're positioned today, um, fuel matters. Uh, and, uh, and we've got to make sure that we take that into account. And the important thing is that, you know, we're, we're flying, uh, as we said, with capacity down, you know, roughly 40 to 50 percent um, in the fourth quarter. Um, but we don't have all of that available for sale, even though we're absorbing all of the costs of it. So as we think going forward, we're positioning the airline to make sure we're, we're all in chasm at a reasonable level that can uh, that can be absorbed as we grow capacity, and I think the team's done a good job of that. Okay, uh, and then Ed, along with the SkyMiles transaction, you, you provided revenue and profitability disclosures for the loyalty program, which highlighted how profitable and durable that portion of your business is. I'm not seeing any of those disclosures being provided today. Uh, that, that's something you alluded to doing at your June Investor Day pre-COVID. So. My question is, will you commit to, starting in 2021, begin disclosing those same metrics, revenue EBITDA, cash proceeds for the loyalty program on a quarterly basis? Well, thanks, Joe. Yes, we are continuing to improve our disclosures. I, frankly, haven't gotten to the 2021 disclosure uh, list yet. Uh, we're trying to get through 2020 first. Uh, but, yes, you're right. When, we, when you look at the transaction and you start to get a sense for the importance of the loyalty uh, program to not just our balance sheet, but our overall uh, future. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a strategic, you know, competitive advantage, one of the most important ones we have, and we'll do, I think, a, continue to do a better job of giving our investor base an appreciation for that, but at the same time, we're going to, we also have to be mindful of the other sensitivities around that data. Thank you. Our next question comes from Hunter Key of Wolf Research. Hi, good morning, everybody. Um, good morning, Hunter. Paul, on the fourth. Good morning, on the fourth quarter, Casamax, uh, the flat Casamax come on. How much do we need to strip out for the third-party refinery sales, and, and what's been driving that lineup so much over the last couple quarters? And then, more broadly, how do we think about the overall ancillary business expense on the P&L into 2021? Yeah, sure. Um, thanks for that question, Hunter. You know, the, the, the refinery sales, uh, as you know, we had managed a lot of that through uh, exchanges for jet fuel. Uh, obviously, with jet consumption down, uh, we've had more volatility and, and just the pure third-party sales as we're not uh, able to exchange that. So we're managing through that um, uh, going forward, and, you know, we expect that that'll be a little bit noisy uh, as we continue through our recovery before things normalize, both in terms of capacity at the airline and then as well as production and, and normalization at the refinery uh, as well. As, as third-party expenses go, obviously, you know, we, we continue to see um, uh, you know, improvement on the horizon in our MRO business. Uh, we've, we've talked about that before with the opportunities ahead of us with the Pratt and the Rolls-Royce. 
uh, agreements going forward. Obviously, there's been some noise around that in the midst of the COVID pandemic, uh, but we'll, we'll continue to see expenses related to those go up as, as volumes increase. But, you know, that should be really be viewed as a, as a separate kind of independent business, as we think, from the cost base of the airline uh, itself. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then um, how many aircraft deliveries do you have now planned in relation to the 383 uh, that you have uh, coming out over that same time horizon? Well, we, we've reduced with the uh, with the deal that has been announced today and, and the uh, uh, numbers in our fleet tables. We've, we've taken out about 77 aircraft um, through the end of 2021 and kind of redistributed that, uh, redistributed that over time. Uh, as uh, as we continue to work through uh, the the impact of the pandemic. Thank you, Paul. Our next question comes from Brandon Oglinski of Barclays. Hey, uh, good morning, everyone, and thanks for taking my questions. Um, Paul, just a quick clarification. I think you said you want to end the year with about $16 billion in liquidity, but I think you ended 3Q at about 21. Can you just help us bridge that? And then maybe off that last question, like how are you thinking about CapEx into 2021, please? Hey, thanks, Brandon. So, um, you know, the, obviously the, uh, the, the two uh, sort of impacts here are the, uh, the cash burn, uh, which we're reducing to 10 to $12 million a day, which is roughly a billion dollars for the quarter. We also had $3 billion that we paid down the, uh, the, the term loan. Uh, and then there's, you know, some of the residual one-time payments to uh, employees who uh, are uh, under the voluntary early retirement separation programs, uh, et cetera, that will continue to pay out into the fourth quarter. So that's the reconciliation. Okay, and then any view on CapEx next year? Um, I think it's too soon to tell uh, at this point. I think, you know, what you heard in Ed's comments, uh, is that uh, you know we're going to continue to focus on on paying down debt as soon as we get uh, to cash break even, um, and I think you're going to see similar discipline to what you've seen uh, in the past that uh, you know led to the balance sheet strength that we had pre-COVID. I think that's reinforced uh, by this pandemic, and uh, we'll manage capex uh, accordingly. All right, thank you. And, and just one quick one quick follow up, Brandon. Uh, I, I also failed to mention. Apologies. The four hundred and fifty million dollar maturity in December uh, is also a cash reduction. Our next our next question comes from Jamie Baker, FJP Morgan. Hey, good morning, everybody. A couple of questions uh, for Glenn. Uh, can you remind us pre-pandemic what the top three or four types of businesses were that make up your corporate demand and maybe what percentage of total revenue they represent? Uh, sure. sure. Uh, banking, of course, uh, financial services, and uh, manufacturing and transportation. And roughly what percentage of total revenue does that account for? Does that Did that account for? Uh, yeah, that would that account for, yes. This is, this is an off-the-cuff off the number because I don't have that at my hand. But, so let's get back to you on that. Okay, fair enough. And second, um, can you discuss <clears throat> the sort of the evolution of the booking curve since March? And more importantly, what do you think has to happen to the curve in order to bring Delta closer to cash break even? And, and do you see any 
you know, structurally permanent changes in the curve post-vaccine? You know, I, I think it's too early to tell what permanent changes there are in the booking curve. What we saw, of course, at the beginning of the pandemic was no bookings at all, and, and uh, cancellations to new bookings were like 100 to 1 uh, in favor of cancellations. And as we moved through this, we saw net positive uh, in terms of bookings. That was the first gate we had to get through in the early parts, and uh, then to positive uh, booking in the second quarter where we were actually generating positive cash flows. And now in the, in the third quarter, I think we're still seeing a very condensed uh, curve, but people really willing to book further out. So we're seeing good booking momentum for Thanksgiving and Christmas, and really even into the off-peak periods in December and into early January, we're seeing uh, more activity than we had in the last month. So every month we move through this, we see more and more customers with more confidence, booking both close in and further out. And that's what we continue to need to see, that development and confidence. And I think when you think of what we've done with the brand and what we've done with the, the seating and the cleanliness and the, uh, all the protocols we've put in place, it's all about building consumer confidence because without consumers being confident, uh, we can't do that. So I think we've made a lot of great progress as an industry, certainly more to go. But we're on a good path, and uh, hopefully we're well, we know we're closer to the end of the pandemic than we are to the, the beginning, but uh, we don't know exactly how it's going to evolve from here to the end, so we'll stay nimble. And, and if I can just squeeze in a third, what stat are you looking at to determine when you'll lift the load factor cap? Or set of statistics, I suppose? Uh, Jamie, this is Ed. We, we, we haven't made that decision yet. We, we continue to watch it. Obviously, it's going to be uh, conditioned on, on consumer uh, sentiment and, and confidence in air travel. I think as each week goes by, uh, as Glenn said, that uh, confidence is improving. Uh, we've got a lot of studies coming out from experts about the safety of, of air travel. And, uh, you know, sometime in the first half of next year, you know, I have no doubt we will be uh, lifting those caps. But, you know, we haven't picked a, a date yet. And I'd say, you know, we'll, we will continue to start the new year with the caps in place. Thank you, gentlemen. Take care. Again, if you would like to ask a question, please press the star key followed by the one key. That was star one. Our next question comes from Safi Sith of Raymond James. Thanks. Good morning. Um, I, I think, Ed, you, you've said that, you know, it, it's not about building back to what was, but building for the future, although you probably put it a lot more eloquently than that. So I was just wondering, you know, have your teams had substantial conversations with corporate customers to kind of get an idea of what the makeup and size of business travel may look like once kind of pandemic fears are behind us, you know, especially now that customers have had a chance to see both what video conferencing technology can and cannot deliver? Hi, Savi. Yes, we are in frequent uh, daily conversation with, with all of our, our corporate customers and you know, a couple couple interesting stats. Uh, today, we have uh, roughly 90% of our of our uh, primary corporate customers who do have travelers who are traveling. Small numbers in many of those, but you know, they're getting their own sense for what the new travel experience is. And anecdotally, they're coming back to us with really strong reviews of safety and, and confidence in in restoring uh, their travel spend. Uh, you know. I, how video technology is going to impact 
uh, long-term business travel. I'm of the view that it, it will have some impact, but it's not going to be a substitute. It will be a complement to, to business travel. It won't be a substitute for business travel. Uh, I don't think anybody knows. Uh, you know, there's lots of experts out there that put dates out as to when, uh, when the new normal will be achieved. My sense is that we could be looking at anywhere from 10 to 20 percent reduction in the, uh, in the next couple years you know, when we get to that new normal of, of business travel. But the one thing I'll also tell you, Savvy, having been in this business for a long time, every crisis that I've been part of, you know, and it's been a lot of crises over, over the 20-plus years, uh, this was the first thing that, that people always uh, talked about, was that business travel was, was the death knell of business travel and uh, technology was going to replace the need, need for travel. And every single time, business travel has come back stronger than anyone uh, anticipated. So I, I think we're going to see that same uh, consumer behavior. It, it will undoubtedly be different, but I think it's going to come stronger than most of the pundits fear. Helpful. Um, and then if I might uh, ask a clarification question on, on on the cash burn, is the kind of the improvement from what you saw in September to what you're kind of thinking that you'll see in the fourth quarter, is that just, is that from, has to come from all revenue given most of the retirements happened uh, in August or are there some other drivers in, in that improvement? That's principally revenue. Right. Thank you. Our next question comes from Diane Finningworth of Evercore. Still Dwayne, thanks for the time. <laughs> um, so just, just on Savi's question there, maybe some longer-term uh, perspective uh, from Ed or whomever, because I think you guys have been fairly thoughtful about the potential for longer-term uh, impairment in corporate. And, and my question is, you know, if that does play out, how will Delta offset that and, and work to restore its, its earnings power? Is this strictly a cost challenge? And obviously, we've got some good news on that front in terms of what you've given us for the fourth quarter. Um, is this strictly a cost challenge, or do you think the industry can think about how it prices leisure travel differently than it has in the past? Well, you know, there's you know, there's a lot of speculation in that question, uh, Dwayne. Uh, you know, today we're 20% smaller as an airline, and that certainly gives us a chance to resize. The, uh, the demand demand set. Uh, you know what it, what impact that will have on international is uh, is still a, an open question mark. Uh, you know we are very well positioned with our hub structure. We feel you know good about uh, that base of travel. We're really um, uh, getting great comments and compliments back from our corporate customers about the travel they're doing. Uh, so share is uh, while small, share is very very strong. And we'll see. I, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't go out to uh, try to suggest what kind of changes. Certainly, there will be you know, some some interesting uh, opportunities um, to look at a new business model around pricing and and competitive uh, uh, markets. But you know, we're doing we're doing what we what we do here. We're playing the long game, um, and over the long term, I'm confident that the strength of our service level the the, the uh, Focus of our people on taking good care of our customers will be the most important thing of any of anything out there. Thanks, and, and maybe if I could sneak in a, a shorter term one, just on the down 40 uh, capacity in the fourth quarter, uh, would you be willing to talk about the cadence by month 
and any early look into the first quarter. Appreciate you taking the questions. Uh, Dwayne, no, we you know, we don't have a, a good enough crystal ball in this environment. Okay, but it, it does feel like it implies a bit of a pickup into November and December. Uh, modest, you know, again, very very small. Thank you. Our next question comes from Mike Lindenberg of Deutsche Bank. Uh, yeah, hey, good morning. Two quick ones here. Um, Paul, just on CapEx 21 and, and, and 22, I think you said at least through 21 you're going to take 77 more airplanes. At least on a gross basis, could you give us what CapEx, what a rough forecast is for at least next year? Um, I think a little bit premature to give total numbers for next year. We talked about a $5 billion reduction, mm -hmm. um, but you know, it's important to note in this environment, um, all of the aircraft uh, are going to come with um, you know, financing in place okay. um, for that. We need, we need to make sure, obviously, we'll have decisions um, to make uh, as we go into 2021, depending on the balance sheet, the pace of recovery, cash, et cetera. But, you know, we, we've, we've got facilities in place to be able to uh, backstop finance those aircraft if needed. Okay, fair enough. And then just my second question, you know, the headline out recently where it looks like uh, the Brazilian regulators are going to put um, the Delta-LATAM deal on trial, and that's, of course, after they approved it. Can you still proceed and move forward um, regardless of, of an ongoing trial? Does that, does that prevent you from doing what you want to do? Hey, Mike, it's uh, P Peter. Good morning. Um, Good morning. A couple, a couple things. One is our joint venture is under review uh, with the U.S. Department of Transportation. Okay. Ultimately, for that to go forward, we will need those approvals. Of course, mm -hmm. we do have some co-chair agreements with them, which are ongoing. And we do expect, we do anticipate that the Brazilian Tribunal will approve the transaction. This is just a second look. Okay, very good. Thanks for that, Peter. Our next question comes from Helene Becker of Cowan. Um, thanks. Thank you very much, Operator. Hi, everybody, and thank you for the time. Um, completely unrelated to things that we've been talking about, you guys um, had an open pilot contract prior to COVID starting. And I'm just wondering if the negotiations that you're undertaking prior to November 1st include updates to that contract or if that's just on hold. Uh, Helene, uh, we're not going to talk about uh, negotiations publicly, but what I can tell you is that the focus is trying to uh, find a way to, to uh, eliminate the need uh, to furlough 1,700 uh, junior pilots. and. Uh, we've given the uh, uh, ALPA, the, uh, the union, a lot of different options, and um, I'm hopeful we can make, reach a resolution, but I'm not, uh, not trying to suggest or forecast that. No, I understand that, just understanding that the main part of the contract is on hold until we get through this part. Is, is that right? I would, I would say that's a fair, that's a fair uh, observation. Okay, good. And then my other completely unrelated question is on the airport construction acceleration and all the other stuff that you're doing, um, which obviously will help improve customer experience as we come out of this. You know, can you just talk about some of those things? Um, are, you, are there thermal camera 
you know, imaging going into place? Are there testing centers for COVID or other things? How, how is the airport going to look going forward? And how should we think about um, the costs associated with landing fees, you know, changing next year? If you're, if you're smaller and everyone else is smaller, I guess we should think landing fees going up. Is that true? Well, uh, you asked a lot of questions in there. Our main focus is to take advantage of the reduced volume of travel to accelerate progress in getting, getting our, our new facilities built in LaGuardia, uh, LAX, uh, Seattle, which has opened up the brand-new Salt Lake City Airport, which is magnificent, and hopefully you all get a chance to get out there and see it sometime soon. Uh, and uh, and that, that's been the, the, the single biggest focus. Yes, we are working on, uh, particularly for international uh, travel, uh, pilots by which we can start to open up lanes of international travel, which I believe will testing will be a, an important ingredient to getting there uh, and working with airport authorities as to how we would administer that. We're working both there here in the U.S. as well as Overseas, working with those authorities, working with the CDC, in uh, in very close contact. So, I, I don't th perceive them having uh, you know big structural changes. I don't see t testing being conducted, for example, on a U.S. Uh, basis uh, before before people fly. I could see it for international. Uh, relative to thermal and temp screening, we've we've asked TSA uh, repeatedly. To, uh, to take that over as part of their screening um, uh, services. And, and right now we've, we've been unable to convince them of that. So I know a few airports are working on that. But, I, again, I don't, I don't see that being a meaningful change to the, to the airport infrastructure. Okay. That's, um, that's very helpful. Thank you. And your, and your question on landing fees, I can't I, – I don't know. I, I think uh, our airports have done a very good job of – of minimizing their own cost and taking advantage of where they've received some government support, uh, using that to reduce cost. But uh, 21 is, uh, is an open question. Gotcha. Okay. Thanks for your help. Our next question comes from David Vernon of Bernstein. Hey, guys. Um, thanks for the time. So, Paul, uh, first question on the balance sheet. Can you tell us kind of what the maturities look like over the next 24 months if we end the year at, at 15, 16 billion? Um, is there anything that's going to be coming due, and is there any flexibility in renegotiating? Okay, yeah, we, th thanks, David. We we've done a lot of that work to date. So the the biggest maturities that we have, we've got a 450 million dollar unsecured maturity in December that I referenced earlier. We have a 600 million dollar unsecured maturity in April. Uh, previously, we had already pushed out our revolver uh, into 2022, and uh, we've got primarily just uh, beyond those two amortization payments now that we've paid off that bridge loan. So I think it's it's very manageable, under $2 billion uh, over the next kind of 15 to, to, to 18 months. All right. Thank you for that. Um, and then, and Ed, maybe um, on, the, on the topic of testing, um, we've been looking at that quite a bit, and I'm wondering what your perspective is on, on timing for when you think either through testing with partners or testing with, with international, other um, international entities, when you might start to think that the, the, the quarters of international travel may start to open up 
Is that something that we should be thinking about in the next sort of three months, six months, nine months? Like, how how are you thinking about that in general? Well, we're we're laying down the we're laying the tracks to create the the testing uh, environment. Obviously, the the advancement in the development of rapid tests uh, are key to that. Um, not only in terms of a fairly quick turnaround, but also a relatively low cost. As you know, the, the U.S. government has, has, has already uh, acquired large supplies in advance of that, so we're, uh, we're talking to the government about that. But I think when you, uh, when you try to put a timeline on it, one of the big wild cards is how the virus is doing, both here in the U.S. as well as in, in other countries, because the goal in all this is to uh, eliminate the need to quarantine when you get to your, your destination. And as we see going on in Europe right now, we're seeing – uh, another wave of the virus starting to starting to spike uh, across Europe, and, and that is that is of concern to to the local authorities. Certainly, uh, their concern likewise here as to seeing rising case counts in the U.S. So I'd say that your your uh, your timing has more to do with the state of the virus and the medical containment of it than it does any specific uh, strategy that we could deploy to make certain everybody stay safe because the, the goal in this is that we want to eliminate quarantines. And, and would, there, would there be some work you'd need to do to kind of integrate some of the, the, the rapid tests and the QR codes and things like that into the, that, that boarding process, or is that stuff you guys have already figured out? Uh, we, we are looking at how you could, you could deploy rapid testing as part of the, uh, as part of the, uh, the check-in and, and boarding process, yes. Thanks very much, Chris. Thanks, David. Our next question comes from Joe Cayoto of Credit Suisse. Hey, thanks very much. Good morning, everyone. Um, just a, a quick one first. Uh, could you comment um, on the trends in, in American Express card spend in the third quarter, or just how that compared with the second quarter, and, and to the extent you can comment on it, how that's trending here in the fourth quarter month to date? Uh, well, well, we don't give uh, specifics on it. I'd say the, the trends uh, have been improving. Uh, you know, we, we, I think we disclosed that we were down about 20%. And uh, so we've seen that 20% come back up. And most encouragingly, uh, we've watched the T&E lines within the cart and, and their progression. And at the uh, worst of the crisis, the airline spend was actually a negative number. It was uh, minus 103%. And we've seen that consistently move up, and now we're down in the low 70s. So that's another exciting sign for us. Not only is the total spend improving, but the uh, spend on airlines itself is improving dramatically. So I think that's about all the color we can share. That's great. I appreciate that, Glenn. And then just maybe another quick one um, for Paul. I think you had previously uh, talked about sort of the, the base level of investment just to, to maintain the business. So, so maintenance, non-aircraft capex is being maybe 500 to 700 million a year. Obviously you took that pretty much to, to zero um, this year, but that's obviously not sustainable long-term. My question is just given all the structural cost reduction efforts across the enterprise, is that still roughly the ballpark for run rate maintenance CapEx, um, you know, two or three years out, or, or is that run rate number now lower as well? Well, I think, you know, certainly we're, we're 20% smaller than we were before. So I would argue that it's probably, a little bit a uh, little bit lower than what it's been but you know a lot of this is going to be timing and you know we see this in terms of what we're doing across the fleet and and really kind of optimizing 
but we're not missing out on the opportunity to accelerate where we can, particularly in technology uh, and that space and the facilities that we've already mentioned. So, you know, I, I think that probably 500 million is, is, a, is a good range, but, you know, I expect that we're going to want to drive the airline to better cash performance to enable us to invest more. Uh, and that's, that's really the message here is that, you know, we've got to continue to invest within our means while we have, you know, the uh, uh, additional goal now of, uh, of paying down a substantial amount of debt over the coming years and through the recovery. Understood. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for taking the questions. Our next question comes from Andrew Didora of Bank of America. Hi, good morning, everyone. Uh, Paul, you know, as you get through the crisis and you're, you implement your fleet simplica- simplification plan, what kind of unit cost savings can this give you, say, versus 2019? And um, is, is there anything that you're willing to share about where you would like your unit cost structure to be as the industry returns to a more normalized trend? Yeah, uh, thanks for that question, Andrew. I mean, we we haven't given any specifics on the on the unit costs around that, but when you look at the gauging potential, the fuel efficiency, the simplification of ev- all overhead functions around training, around maintenance, tooling, et cetera, uh, we have previously said as part of our investor day that it was worth billions of dollars a year. Uh, as we uh, as as we complete that, uh, what we've been able to do is is as you know to date probably accelerate that timeline by uh, more than five years against where we thought we were going to be pre-COVID. So I think as we position the airline going forward, there's no there's no doubt that we are we are very very focused on on keeping chasm below pre-COVID levels. Um, you know, I think the, the, the jury is out as to how effective we can do that based on how demand returns and how chasm come or how uh, capacity comes back. But I think the early returns based on what we're able to, what we think we're going to be able to do in the December quarter is, is uh, going to be a pretty good uh, early indication of our, of our focus working in the right direction. That's great. Thank you. And then just sort of a near-term modeling question. When I just look at your pure salaries and, and wages line item, it's been at about $2 billion the last two quarters. You know, is you think that's a good baseline to work off of going forward here, or can you get that down a little bit more with some further workforce actions? Thanks. Well, I think, Andrew, as we've talked about, you know, we're, we're, we're currently not anticipating um, uh, any furloughs of, of uh, ground and flight attendant employees, and with the uh, with the leaves that we've taken, we're approaching a pretty good run rate on on where we'd expect to be uh, going forward. So, you know, beyond the actions that we've already announced and and potentially um, uh, uh, a, uh, a transaction with the pilots or or, or managing to get that cost out. Um, you know, there's a little bit more to go, but I think uh, largely we, we've done what we, uh, we've needed to do to date. Okay, great. Thank you. And Kathy, we're going to have time for one more question from the analyst. Thank you. Our final question comes from Miles Walton of UBS. I know um, probably a little premature question, but thinking about the long game, Ed, with the, the Airbus delivery schedule cleaned up, retirement plans set through 25, is now the right time for opportunistic overtures uh, to Boeing for 
you know, thinking about an order, um, given the pro forma fleet in that out year is still 40% Boeing, but obviously, uh, you know, your order book there is still essentially zero. Uh, hey, Miles, uh, I get asked that question by the press all the time, and I'll give you my my standard response is that we talk to the OEMs about all aircraft all the time and uh, always looking for opportunities. So I don't have anything to report on that, but uh, you can you can rest assured that we're always we're always looking for opportunities where we're able to advantage Delta. Is there, is there a reason for the 2025 dating of the retirement plan for the 6-7 and, and 1-7s in particular? No, it's just a convenient five-year interval. Obviously, there will be more retirements post post 25, but it's uh, we figured five years is uh, is a pretty long look, uh, given given what we've been through this year. Okay, thanks. Sure. And that's going to wrap up the analyst portion of the call. I'll now turn it over to Tim Mapes, our chief marketing and communications officer. Well, in addition to welcoming all the members of the media to the call uh, in the few moments that we have here, Cassidy, if you wouldn't mind just reiterating the instructions for each of them to enter the queue. And again, if you would like to ask a question, please press the star key followed by the one key. That was star one to ask an audio question. And again, that was star one. Our first question comes from Tracy Ruzinski from Reuters. That was repaid by goal and how much And Ms. Ruzinski, if you don't mind just repeating yourself, we are now able to hear you. Sure. <laughs> so uh, about the the Brazil uh, goals loan that was refinanced last month, can you tell us how much was repaid by goal and uh, how much is outstanding and refinanced? Hey, good morning, Tracy. This is Paul. Uh, so we had a we didn't actually have a loan to goal. We had a three hundred million dollar guarantee, and um, what we did was restructured that guarantee and, and lent them $250 million. And uh, uh, we've got uh, amortization payments that are required, and they are current with that, with that loan. So uh, uh, that's where it currently sits. Okay. And then just given your strong liquidity position now, are you planning to inject any cash into LATAM or Aeromexico? We have, we have no plans uh, at the present, Tracy. We need to get through our own our own crisis here first. Okay, thanks. Our next question comes from Allison Sider of Wall Street Journal. Uh, hi, thank you. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us anything about kind of what you're seeing or where things may stand in Washington um, over ATOX. We've seen a lot of your... Um, peers at you know, other top airline executives spending a lot of time in Washington and, and pushing for more aid, and um, at least publicly haven't seen you there as much and wondering uh, why that is. Well, we certainly support the extension of the CARES Act II, uh, uh, as it's been labeled for, for PSP, for airline workers, and I certainly hope, uh, given the strong bipartisan support that exists, that a vehicle uh, for that extension can be found here soon uh, to be able to bring 32,000 
airline industry employees back to work. We don't. We we're fortunate. We haven't had to furlough anyone yet uh, to this to this juncture. I do want to acknowledge the great work of the Delta team in making a real difference. Uh, we are not facing furloughs in any work group with the lone exception of the pilots. We still have an overstaffed situation we're trying to work with the union on. But every other work group within Delta, we've been able to manage uh, to mitigate it through all the voluntary leaves, 40,000 people taking unpaid leaves throughout the summer. 20% uh, of our employees have, have opted to early retire. We've had reduced hours and, uh, and work schedules, uh, shared jobs. You know, it's been incredible. And excluding the, the, the pilots for the moment out of, out of the labor cost, we've been able to save 40% of our employee costs over the last six months as a result, which is uh, eliminate the need to, to, uh, to undergo furloughs. So that's my, uh, that's my view on that. Where this goes, I have no idea. Uh, it seems to change uh, by the day, if not uh, many times within the day. Uh, we're still hopeful something will happen. I, I guess, do you see it as um, less of a priority for Delta then, sort of given your success getting labor costs down in other ways? I don't. I don't think it's less of a, a priority for Delta. I think that you know, with the, the large numbers of furloughs that are at other airlines, it, it's a heightened priority there. Uh, but we would be pleased to uh, to see uh, see that extension given to all the industry. You know, wh however, the industry and everyone within the industry has managed the crisis a bit differently. Uh, the reality is, is the virus is not at the level of containment that we all thought it would be when the first grant was issued. And we will all need additional time to get our businesses in a in a better spot over you know, to get ready for next year. Thanks, Cassidy. We need to get Ed and the members of the leadership team to an employee town hall, but we have time for one final question, please. Yes, sir. Our final question comes from Leslie Joseph of CNBC. Hi. Thanks for taking my question. Good morning, everybody. Um, just a quick question on the loyalty program. You said you're seeing spending, uh, you're, you expect spending to increase in the fourth quarter. Do you have any um, detail about where you expect spending to go in the first and second quarter and how that could contribute to breaking even or even going cash flow positive? Well, clearly the, uh, the loyalty program and the American Express deal have been uh, great advantages for us through this pandemic. Uh, you know, we have seen continued spend improvement through the uh, second, third, and now uh, fourth quarter. And I think it's too early for us to go out and say that uh, what Christmas will be like or what the post-Christmas uh, spend will be. But the trends that we've seen today are very encouraging. I think a lot of that also has to do with does a stimulus bill gets passed uh, either in November or in January. So uh, there are a lot of, of factors that weigh into how people spend on those cards but I would say we've been very encouraged by the trends we've seen. Okay, and would that contribute to you going cash flow uh, or break even or cash flow positive? Absolutely. Do you know to like what That's degree that. or what the margin no, is no. on it? No, we're not going to disclose okay. that, but uh, it's a significant contribution. Okay, thanks very much. Great, Cassidy. Thank you very much, everyone. Appreciate everyone's time. We'll look forward to uh, speaking with everyone in January. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's teleconference. You may now disconnect.